All right, guys, welcome back to our teaching in the book of Matthew. Now, the last time we were here in chapter five, we dealt with the opening of Jesus's Sermon on the Mount. And in chapter five, as we concluded, we talked about, as a matter of fact, let's just give a summation of it as a whole. He gave what is called the Beatitudes, and we saw that in the blessedness. And that is anyone who desires to come into the kingdom of God, which is the kingdom of heaven, which is the kingdom of the Messiah, such a one should have total dependence upon the Messiah and his work alone, should thirst and hunger after that which the Messiah can only give, should be sorrowful for sins and should look forward to the Messiah being a fulfillment of all that such a one needs in his life. And then he continues to talk about in that respect to that disciple who depends upon the work of the Messiah, how therefore should he live his life? And so he begins to talk about that disciple should be the light of the world and that it should be like a lamp, a light and a lamp. That is such a disciple depending on the Messiah should be an example to the Gentile world. And this is the purpose why Christ leads us into the world so that we may be an example of righteousness, so that we may be an exemplar of the works of Christ himself. And so then he continues on in that section and he gives somewhat of a warning and says that if the disciples life or if the disciples uh, righteousness does not surpass the righteousness of the Pharisees who were their teachers, that they shall in no wise enter into the kingdom of heaven. And that forms basically the remainder of chapter, the end of chapter five, chapter six, as well as chapter seven. It basically covers that in totality. And what we see concerning this statement was, we want to remember that the Pharisees were the teachers of the Jewish people, Pharisees, scribes, lawyers, basically all one class or category. And we remember that the Sadducees were leaders or rulers of the temple and the temple mount, but the Pharisees were the lead teachers of the common people. So therefore what Jesus was giving is a basic direct attack against the Pharisees. And he begins to attack the teachings of the Pharisees at the end of chapter five, when he talked about, and you have heard that it was said about committing murder or committing adultery or even things of that nature, that all of that you've heard that it was said was against the teachings of the Pharisees. So Jesus was basically teaching directly against what the Pharisees taught the people, because he would always say, but I say unto you, I in the authority as the Messiah say unto you. And this is again, another reason why Jesus performed so many works because those works or signs, miracles that Jesus did attested that indeed he was the Messiah. And with the authority of the Messiah, he could therefore teach the people the true meaning of the law. Okay. Now, that wraps up chapter five. So now let's get into chapter six and chapter six kind of detours in a little bit because at the end of chapter five, what Jesus was saying to us is he was dealing with the teachings of the Pharisees. Now he's going to deal with the hypocritical behavior of the Pharisees. And remember, all of this is derived from 
except your righteousness should surpass the righteousness of the Pharisees, you shall in no wise enter the kingdom of heaven. So all of this derives from the Pharisaical teachings, wrong, and the Pharisaical behavior or behaviors in chapter six and throughout that Jesus is about to point out wrong. So Jesus is going to teach the people do not imitate the behavior, the so-called righteousness, righteous behavior of the Pharisees. Okay. Now with all of that, let's get into chapter six. Beware of practicing your righteousness before men to be noticed by them. Otherwise you have no reward with your father who is in heaven. So when you give to the poor, do not sound a trumpet before you as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets. So they may, so that they may be honored by men. Truly I say to you, they have their reward in full, but when you give to the poor, do not let, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing so that your giving will be in secret and your father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. Okay. So now he lays down the first instance or example of the hypocrisy of the so-called righteousness of the Pharisees. So, and notice again now, it is a direct attack. They know he's talking about them, but let's just simply get into the example. Beware of practicing your righteousness before men. So that's the whole idea of what you do in order to be seen as righteousness. This is what the Pharisees were doing. Their so-called righteousness was done for the sole purpose to be observed and appreciated by men. And Jesus is simply saying, you beware of this type of foolishness. And so notice why, because you have no reward from your father in heaven. And that brings in the idea of the lower over against the exalted state. That is men on earth who account for nothing over against the father who is in heaven, who is over all things. But let's continue. So he gives the example of almsgiving. That is giving to the poor. The Pharisees had this practice of when they would give to the poor, whether in the synagogue or in the street, they would make a big deal of their giving and draw the intent of the Pharisees was to draw the attention of men to their alms giving to the poor. And so Jesus says, when they do such a thing as that, drawing the attention of men, seeking the praise and acknowledgement of men, they have their reward in full. Now I like that. That means they get no further reward. You wanted the attention and praise of men. That's exactly what you will get. You get nothing further from God himself. So all you got was the earthly attention of men. He says, but on the contrary, and notice all throughout this particular section, he will be saying, this is what the Pharisees do. However, I say you do something else. You do something contrary to what the Pharisees should do. So he says to his disciples, and what you have to understand is Jesus is speaking in a generic sense. Notice now in a generic sense to his disciples, 
to a believers. Now we know everybody's not going to be a believer in their wide bunch, but those who claim to be believers, those who are genuinely believers, he says, don't follow their examples in almsgiving. But when you give to the poor, he gave an uh, idiomatic statement. Don't let your right hand know what your left hand is doing. The idea is, and remember, notice now, your right hand and your left hand are both connected to your body, to the same body. But what Jesus is doing is, let your giving be so secret that don't your right hand didn't even see it. It had no idea what the left hand was actually doing. Okay, so give in secret. Why? So that the Father who is in heaven, notice again that elevated sense, earthly men compared to the Father in heaven, who sees all, knows all, and is truly able to bless those who give in this manner, so that your Father who is in heaven will see, he who sees in the secret thing, and guess what? He will bless you. Now, not like and I don't want to get into the whole point about the King James rendering of this. He will bless you openly because that is clearly not the idea because you become like a Pharisee. You're giving in secret so that God can bless you openly. And this Greek text, and I don't want to get into it, but the Greek text that was used in the King James version, the Stephanus Greek text is improper here. Okay. So the point is that your father will simply bless you. In whatever manner God chooses to bless you, he will bless you. Not blessing you so again you'll be exalted in the eyes of men, but bless you in whatever areas you need blessing in. Okay? God would render a reward. The, po the point of all of this is the Pharisees, in their hypocritical practicing of righteousness, they do to be seen of men. You do not do that. You do it so that the father who sees all things secretly will reward you for it. So that's the principle that Jesus is developing. So with that, let's move to the next example. When you pray, verse number five, you are not to be like the hypocrites. Notice what Jesus calls the Pharisees clearly hypocritical. Their righteousness is hypocritical righteousness. But let's keep reading the text. Don't be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and on the street corners so that they may be seen by men. Truly, I say to you, they have their reward in full. But you, when you pray, go into your inner room, close your door and pray to your father who is in secret and your father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. And when you are praying, do not use meaningless repetitions as the Gentiles do, for they suppose that they will be heard for their many words. Okay. Now Jesus gives the second example of prayer over against the Pharisees. Notice what he says. Number one, he calls them hypocrites. In other words, they are not praying to be heard by God. They are praying simply to be heard by men, to be acclaimed by men, praised by men. Okay. So notice what Jesus said that they do. Notice in the public display of men before men, they go to the synagogues and stand on street corners 
delivering these long, <laughs> long exalted prayers. Why? Because they are not concerned about what is reaching the ears of God. They are concerned about what is reaching the ears of men seeking to be praised by men. But Jesus says for his disciples, but I say unto you in that sense, but you, what do you do? And he uses again, uh, a, a, a basically an idiomatic or parabolic type phrase. Go into your closet, your inter, inner sanctum, go into a private place. And all he is not, Jesus is not so much saying that when we should pray, we should go into a literal closet. But what he is doing is he is contrasting what the Pharisees do at, over against what he wants us to do. The Pharisees are where? All out into the public praying, praying so that people can see them and praise them. Jesus is simply saying to us, you just simply go and pray in private where only the father hears and only the father will reward you. And so he simply ends it in the same sense as he did previously. For as the Pharisees would pray in the public, that was the end of their reward. That was the end of their prayer. Their prayer never went further than the ears of men. But as you, my disciples who pray in privately, your prayers never are in the ears of men and they reach the intended target who is God and God who listens and receives their prayers and God answers their prayers. And this becomes a distinction between the Pharisees prayer or hypocritical prayer and the true disciples prayer. And then Jesus goes on and he continues to make another examples with this time the Gentiles. And he deals with the issue of just foolish and empty repetitions. And he says, don't pray like the Gentiles or in other words, pagan prayers, idolaters, how they pray. And how did the idolaters pray from the, from the, point of vain, empty repetition, saying the same thing over and over and over again. He says, why? Because they think that they will be heard by their gods through their many repetitions of words. And so he contrasts our prayer, how discipleship prayer is simply saying, you just simply say what it is you're saying in prayer. There is no need for us to repeat ourselves in prayer over and over again. Why? You are praying to God who hears all things, who knows all things, who even knows your prayer before you even utter it. You don't have to preach vain over and over and over again as if what you're going to do is move God. You're going to move God because you keep saying it over and over. You got to be careful. Prayer is not so much as to move God's hand. Prayer is really the idea and principle of a prayer is to come into God's will, come for us to come into God's will, not for us to move God to do our will, but for us to come into his will. No need of vain repetition because that's not going to move God to do something outside of his own will to do it. Okay. And so now, even as Jesus is in the context of prayer, he continues on with the essence of prayers or the principle of prayers or what we call, and, and, and 
I've heard some people say it many times, the Lord's Prayer. Okay, fine. I understand what people are trying to say is this is how the Lord said to pray. But this is not the Lord's prayer because the Lord, that is Jesus, would never ask for forgiveness. He did no sin and neither was guile found in his mouth. So this is not Jesus's prayer. This is Jesus directing his disciples how to pray. Okay, and this is the Sermon on the Mountain. So this is a generic sense. But what we are seeing is the principles of prayer. So Jesus is not telling us when you pray, literally say these words. That's not what he's doing. He's saying when you do pray, involve these things, involve these principles into your prayer when you pray. And that's what he's saying. Not necessarily say these words, but deal with these issues. What are the issues? So now let's get into it. Verse number nine, pray then in this way, our father who is in heaven, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also forgive, have, have forgiven our debtors and do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from the evil. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. For if you forgive others their transgressions, your heavenly father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others, then your, your father will not forgive your transgressions. Okay, now let's talk about this section again. The prayer is a disciple's prayer, not about so much as the repetition of this prayer. It's not about when we pray our father who art in heaven, because some people actually pray that way. That's not what Jesus is saying. He's saying include these elements and what elements are these? Notice he says, pray then in this manner, hutos. That means including these things in your prayer. What our father who is in heaven, that is our prayers should be directed to God the Father. Now, there is nothing wrong with praying to God the Son, but as a matter of common case, that is in the normative, the usual way to pray is to direct our prayers to God our Father. And then he says, hallowed be your name. And that is to set God apart as we are praying to God, set him apart as holy, to revere God in our prayers, to glorify God through and in our prayers, to worship God in our prayers. And then he continues to say, your kingdom come and your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. In other words, remember what I was telling you about prayer as Jesus was just saying about the constant repetition of words in prayer. The point that I just made was our prayers should not be so designed as to get God to do our will. Our prayer should be so designed as to come into the knowledge of God's will and that we ourselves to, should submit 
to the will of God. So that's the very idea of prayer, not to get God to do what you want, but that we should submit to what God desires. And notice how he breaks that down in two points. What? Your kingdom come. The kingdom, the coming kingdom of God deals with the kingdom of the Messiah, that is the millennial reign, the reign of Jesus that is spoken of by the prophets that should come. We pray that it should come. We pray that it should be accomplished. And all of this is by God's determination. It's God's will. And we also pray and look forward to the coming kingdom of God. And we will see this at the end, the very end of the reign of the Messiah. And so notice your kingdom come, your will be done. So prayer, our prayer, once again, not to get God to do what we want, but to seek that the will of God should be accomplished on this earth, ending in what? The kingdom of Messiah and even the glorious kingdom of the Father, Revelation chapter 21. Okay? And then it gives us another principle. Give us this day our daily bread. And so he begins to talk about daily needs. What should we pray about? And the idea, notice what Jesus says. He focuses our prayer on what is needed for this day. And he's going to expand this particular concept even later on in our chapter six. But give us this day. He is praying for the needs of praying for the needs of God's people, praying that God would satisfy our needs. But notice how this prayer is restrained to our daily bread. He did not say, give us for the week, give us for the month, give us for the year. He simply says, give us bread, give us food to eat just for today. And as I said, he's going to expand on this, but this comes out of the hope, out of the very essence of faith that what we are trusting and looking for God to supply our needs for this day. And you know what? God provides my need for this day. And you know what I'm going to believe? I believe that on tomorrow, God will provide for my needs on that day. So we are not asking for God to supply our needs for days on end into the future. Why? Because such prayer reveals a lack of faith. So even as Jesus teaches us to pray in this manner for simply our daily needs, he is developing our faith. He's asking, he's telling us to depend and grow on your faith and trust in God. What trust in God? That God who supplies my need for today, he will supply my needs for tomorrow. Now, Jesus is going to even expand this later on, but let's continue. Then he moves it to the point of concerning the forgiveness of sins. Now, this can be a tough one, but, and, and a lot of people have misinterpreted this point when they're talking about when Jesus says, because if you don't forgive the sins of others, your father would not forgive your sins. Number one, you have to remember what I said to you earlier and the very context of Jesus. Jesus is not talking about being saved. Jesus is not talking about a person who is getting saved. In other words, or, 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 or Jesus is not dealing with the issue of the necessity. This is wrong. The necessity of 
ongoing forgiveness of others so that God will forgive you. And in other words, let's build this. Let's, this, let's build the false dichotomy. It's a false dichotomy here that if you don't forgive them, others, the God won't forgive you. And ultimately you go to hell. That's not what Jesus is doing. Why? The assumptive is this is a disciple's prayer. This is the prayer of one who is already saved. You're not losing your salvation because of lack of forgiveness, but you are doing what Jesus has said to you earlier. What? Remember what Jesus said. Do what your father does. He gives light to even sinners as he does to the righteous. He causes the crops to grow for sinners, even as he causes the crops to grow for the righteous. Be perfect, be complete, be spiritual and mature, showing that you are truly indeed sons of your father. So this stems, this is related to that thing that Jesus said earlier. But let's just simply go into the direct, the point. Let's go directly to the text here. So what does he say? And forgive our debts. So he's at, he's saying to us that all the to every time when we do pray, it should be a common thing done in our prayers to ask God for forgiveness. But notice here, as we also have forgiven. Now, this, and I want to get into a lot of the Greek, but this is in the perfect tense. But what he is saying is, even as you are asking God to forgive your sins, when you come before God asking for forgiveness, you have already forgiven people who have sinned, trespass is the word, sinned against you. So even as you are asking for forgiveness, you are recalling, you have already recalled people who've done you wrong and you have already settled it in your heart to forgive them. Why? And, 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 and then he says, forgive, forgive us, even as we've given our debtors. And then he says, do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Then that is for God to keep us from being tempted. Not that God delivers us from all temptation, but that God should deliver us from great temptation so that we will not sin against him that God would help us, that we would not sin against him. And so he says, deliver us even from evil, or this can also be interpreted from the evil one. Okay. Now what I was about to prematurely get into was Jesus's commentary on that, his own commentary. And that's found in verse 14 and 15 concerning when we come to God in prayer and the need to forgive others. When we are asking for forgiveness, we need to have already forgiven others. He provides commentary in verse number 14. For if you forgive, if, if you forgive others for their trespasses, what your father in heaven will forgive yours. And it, but if on the other hand, you don't forgive other people, their trespass against you, God won't forgive you of your trespasses. Now let's, let's let, let me explain what's going on. What Jesus is saying. Jesus is dealing with relationship. Jesus is not. So say it with me. Jesus is not dealing with the issue of salvation. Why? In order for a person to be saved, you have to believe in the person and the work of Jesus. You have to believe that Jesus is God 
who came in the flesh and that he gave that fleshly body as a sacrifice for sins on the cross and was resurrected on the third day, seated now, ascended into the right hand to heaven, seated at the right hand of God. You have to believe upon the person and work of Jesus. This is what it means to be saved. This is what it takes to be saved, to believe upon the person of Jesus. It does not take forgiving people of their sins against you to be saved. That never saves you. It's believing on Jesus and Jesus alone. So what is Jesus saying here? He's dealing with continued relationship or in other words, continued fellowship with God and other. So what is he saying? We sin against God once even, even when we are saved. Okay. You guys, let's say you got saved. Let's say you've been saved even for some years now. You still cannot deny. I cannot deny since that time I have sinned against God. So, but, and you know what sin does? Sin troubles. It mires. It, it can even break fellowship with God. Notice I didn't say relationship. Oh my God. I can't get into this topic to a great extent. When we sin against God, it breaks our fellowship with God. It does not. It does not break our relationship with God. Consider it this way. Let me give you an example that we can all understand, especially for those of us who have children or even you might be someone. I know you're somebody's child, somebody, but have a family. If we have children, they are our sons and daughters. And that's the idea with Jesus. When we confess Jesus, we become sons and daughters of God. All right. There are times when our children do things displease, displease us. That's the sin that Jesus is talking about. And even though our children can do things that displease us, and sometimes we become angry, sometimes we become angry with them, still as good parents, we never do not acknowledge the fact, the fact is no matter what they've done, I may not be speaking with them at this time. I may not have spoken with them in years, but still, what is the fact of the relationship? They are still my son. They are still my daughters. The relationship, I'm sorry, the fellowship between us is not what it should be, but the relationship remains unbroken. No matter what they say, no matter what they do, they are st that one is still my son, still my daughter. I'm just not pleased with them. And I, and our fellowship is broken at this time. This is what Jesus is talking about. Maintaining ongoing fellowship with the father by doing what? Asking for forgiveness and forgiving others. Because what? If we fail to forgive others, then it troubles our relationship with the father. That is our fellowship. Jesus is simply saying ongoing fellowship with God, the father will be troubled, will be troubled when you do not forgive others. He is not talking about salvation. And this is what John was talking about in first John. 
Notice what John the apostle says. If we, so notice John said we, including of himself. And we all know that John the apostle was saved. But what did he say? If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. John is not talking about getting saved because John, even as he writes about confessing the sins, John is already saved. So John is not talking about the confession of salvation, the forgiveness of sins for salvation. John is talking about ongoing fellowship. What is needed? Confessing of sins is needed for ongoing fellowship with God. And that's what Jesus is talking about. Confessing the sins that's needed for what? Ongoing fellowship, not relationship. We remain the sons of God, but that fellowship with God, that walking hand in hand, kind of imagine like you drop hands, you drop hands, but he'll still say, that's my son and my daughter, but I'm not well pleased. I'm not well pleased, but that's what we want. And what does this ongoing fellowship that Jesus is teaching here demands? Ongoing fellowship with the Father demands the forgiveness of others. Okay? All right. Now, with that, let's continue. Whenever you fast, do not put on a gloomy face as the hypocrites do, for they neglect their appearance so that they will be noticed by men when they are fasting. Truly, I say they have the reward in full, but you, when you fast, anoint your head and wash your face so that your fasting will not be noticed by men, but by your father who is in secret and your father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. Okay. So now he moves to another example in his example of fasting and notice the principles remain the same. The Pharisees, the hypocritical Pharisees fast. And I think they fasted on Mondays and Thursdays twice a week, <laughs> but the hypocritical fat, uh, <laughs> hypocritical Pharisees fasted on Mondays and Thursdays and what they would do. And they did it to be seen of men so that they will receive praise for men for their so-called righteousness, their so-called deep spiritual. He really deep, deep spiritual. He's deep in God. He's deep because they would mar their faces and, and not uh, a bath and, 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 and make themselves look awful. And they want people to ask, what's going on with, with you today? Uh, uh, rabbi so-and-so, well, I'm fasting today. I'm, I'm, I'm bad. <laughs> So that when people see them in this despondent look, they would go, truly, he is a man of faith. <laughs> Jesus says, no, don't you do that because these men are hypocrites. And guess what? As Jesus has been commonly saying throughout this teaching already, the, the, the end of their rewards is right there. When men noticed them and spoke well of their righteous, so-called righteousness, he said, that's the, that's all they're going to get from that situation. But on the other hand, contrasting them when his people, when you do your fasting, don't let people know that you're fasting. Go about your day as normal. Comb your hair, wash your face, brush your teeth. Don't go around with stinky breath. <laughs> so that people can, 
but you look as if you are not fasting. Why? The whole principle again and again and again. The father sees what you're doing. He knows that you're fasting and fasting always should have a desire behind it. Don't just fast because it's Monday. Don't fast because it's Thursday. Fast with a purpose. And so that as you are fasting with a particular purpose in mind, God, who knows what that purpose is, he will reward that purpose. Men never saw it, but God saw what you wanted and God rewarded that purpose. Okay, so now let's continue with the next example, 19, concerning now the issue of money. And this will be an extensive section and, and concerning money. This, this section concerning money will be extensive. And, and I praise the Lord for that. Why? Because God knows that, number one, we have impurity in our hearts concerning money. That is greed, or as John would say, lust of the eyes. And we all, and as they asked one rich guy, how much money does it take to satisfy you? And he simply replied, well, more of it. That's how. <laughs> God knows we have these issues concerning money in our hearts and in our minds. And we have these fears and anxieties concerning money. That is, how am I going to live? And I need to provide for myself, for my family, for my children. God knows all of these things, especially the sin in the heart concerning building up great amount of money. And so Jesus spends an enormous amount of time in addressing the issue of money, especially concerning the Pharisees in their practices concerning money and what they thought about money. And again, I'll just go ahead and tell you now before we get into it. The Pharisees considered money, a great amount of money, great wealth to be a sign of God's favor. The very thing that the Pharisees believed was a sign of God's favor. Jesus thought nothing about that whatsoever. Jesus did not think about having a bunch of money. Jesus opinion would be like, OK, so what? So what? And he was the one who owned the cattle of a thousand hill. And he was the one who could say the silver and gold of the whole earth is mine. All of it is mine. And Jesus would say, so what? This does not mean anything. So even as I begin this particular part of this teaching, may the Lord help you and may the Lord help me help our hearts in this thing about money that we should, we should, I want to come into the fullness of what Jesus was saying about money. Bless us, Lord, that we can be just like this. Okay. So now let's get into the verse 19. Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but store up for yourselves Treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys, where thieves do not break in or steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. The eye is the lamp of the body. So then if your eye is clear, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light that is in you is darkness, how great 
is the darkness. No one can serve two masters for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he would be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and mammon. Bless us, Lord. I thank you for that. But let's go into what he says. So again, everything that I just told you about how the Pharisees looked towards, looked at money, money, great wealth. They aspired for, to, for themselves to have great wealth. Even today, many of us, as, uh, we want to have a lot of money. It doesn't, it doesn't mean that. All, I, let me tell you. Let me, okay, let me talk personally. There's a verse in the Psalms where the psalmist says, he's praying to God. He says, and this one I do love and this one I do hold for myself. He says, Lord, do not let me become too poor. Less because in becoming too poor, I do something wrong. I steal and bring shame to your name. So don't let me be too poor that I can't provide for myself or even my family. And then he says, and also too, Lord, on the other hand, don't let me become too rich, lest being lifted up in pride, I forget all about you. So notice what the psalmist asks. He asked God not to let him become too poor and don't let him become full of riches, just simply to provide for his need. That is such a beautiful thing. And that's something that we all need to do. And this is something that Jesus has already taught. Remember what he says in the prayer? When you pray, Lord, give us what? This day, our daily bread. Pray for God to meet your needs. Not to be too poor. Don't need to be too rich because there are downfalls, pitfalls for both points. But anyway, let's go into the text. So he says, Jesus gives a warning. It's a command. It is a command. Do not do this. So he's not asking us. He is literally telling us not to do these things over against the practices of the Pharisees. What is it? Store up treasures. And I like the term that Jesus used. He used a generic term, whether it's money, clothing, jewelry, whatever, anything of great value. Do not store them. He says, why? He said, notice what can happen to them. They can rust. The moth can come and get them. If it's close money, silver, gold, rust, uh, um, uh, uh, rust, moth eating clothes. You sit up there with these clothing thinking they're so valuable. Next thing you know, the Roth moth got them and eating up your beautiful, valuable clothing or Thieves can come in and break in and don't tell me we put our money in the bank. Thieves can break into banks and all this other stuff. Crypto technology, they steal from crypto. Even so, don't put up your money believing and hoping that somehow it will endure. Why? Because these things are not stable. They may not even necessarily remain on this earth. They may not even survive. But what? Instead of worrying about storing up massive amounts of money or great deal of money, and many of us have, and some of us have to deal with this more so than others. Some of us have to deal with this more so than others. But, but store up, this is what Jesus says, treasures in heaven. And by storing up treasures in heaven, this means we know we can't send money. We cannot send money to heaven. So the treasure that we are storing up in heaven are our good deeds for the Lord. The things that you do 
for Jesus. All of those things amount to heavenly treasure. So concentrate, store up this, let this be your aim in life and not about having a lot of money like Joel Osteen and Creflo Dollar and all the rest of these false prophets will teach. It's not about money. It's about what we do that we store up great reward in heaven. But let me simply continue. And he says, where the moth, where the earthly things like uh, moth, rust, and thieves cannot get to. In other words, it's simply the opposite of where those people who were worried about stirring up earthly riches had to worry about something happening to them. Jesus says, you store up your treasure, heavenly riches, where nothing can happen to them. And then, then he says this, for where your treasure is, there is your heart. I like this point. So allow me some time to even talk about it. When you store up things on the earth, it shows that this is where your mind is. This is where your heart is. But when you store up, do good deeds, not worried about this money, building up money, 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 money. But when you say, I need to be concerned about what I can do for Christ, 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 Christ do that. He says it indicates ultimately where your heart is, where your thoughts are, where your intent for where you where you want to be, where you want to be. And it brings my mind to the example of Lot's wife. And remember, and I'm not going to go through all of the details. Hopefully you have you know it. But anyway, I did a teaching on that in Genesis already went through the whole teaching of Genesis. I think it's chapter 18. Go back and look at it, 18, 19. When the angels took Lot and his wife by hand and, and the children as well, two, two girls, leading them out of, um, um, you know where they led them out, out of Sodom and Gomorrah, <laughs> leading them out of this filthy place. He told them, come, run, don't look back. But what happened to Lot's wife? She looked back. What was, and she turned into a pillar of salt that was judgment. But here's the point. What was the looking back to Sodom all about? It was because there in Sodom was a heart's attachment. There in Sodom, even though being led out bodily, that's where she truly wanted to be and in judgment. So here's the point. Since you want to be in Sodom, that's where your heart wants to be. Suffer the judgment of those in Sodom. And that's the idea. So what does Jesus say here? For where your heart is, for your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Be Notice the end of it is not so much about the money. The end of it becomes what's, what's, what's in your heart. And so Jesus says, be careful about where you're laying up treasure because it becomes the true indication of where you want to be. If you're laying up all this money on the earth, you simply want to be on the earth. Remember what Jesus said earlier, how you should pray? Thou kingdom come, thou will be done. I want to be in the kingdom of Christ. I want to be in the kingdom 
of God the Father. I want to be caught up in the rapture when Jesus comes in the cloud and calls all of his own to himself. Jesus gives a warning. But if you put all this money on the earth, it's not with me that you want to be with. It's on the earth that you want to be in. Okay, but anyway, enough of that. So let's go on. And then Jesus gives something that's it's kind of cryptic in a sense. And you have to deal with that. This whole point about the eye. It's about the purity of the heart. It deals with purity and intent because Jesus is giving this cryptic parable in context to storing up money on the earth. Don't do it. This relates to that. So he says the eye, the eye is a lamp unto is a, is a, a lamp unto the light of the body. It lets the light go into the body. And so therefore he's dealing with the purity, not just simply the singleness, but let me say it this way. When you truly desire something, when you truly desire something, it fills your body with the purity or the impurity of that desire. Okay. So let's look at the money thing. That's what Jesus is talking about. You want the money stuff and whatever, whatever, whatever. But remember, he says now, but wherever the treasure is, there's your heart. Now the eye letting in the purity of this, the, not purity, but letting in the light of desire. The eye lets in the light of the desire. The light of the desire here is money, not the kingdom of heaven, not Christ, but money. And notice what it does. It truly darkens the whole body because such a one's motives are impure, therefore making him altogether completely impure. And as having such impure desires makes such a one unfit for the kingdom of God. Now let's look at the other side of the eye and letting the light in. But if the eye lets in the light and it's I listen lamp of the body, lets in the light and that light is pure, it illumines, it makes the whole body pure and then such a person is pure indeed and fit for the kingdom of God. Motives, purity, not being attached to money, mammon of this world, that's what he's gonna talk about. Not being so attached to this money and because you are pure, you're setting your treasure for the kingdom of heaven, then you yourself is, are fit for the kingdom of heaven. You are pure. So one setting his affections for treasures on this earth is full of darkness. On the other hand, the other setting his affections for the things of heaven is full of light and therefore is fit for the kingdom of God. So you see that cryptic little thing that Jesus is doing. So he is saying, don't love money. So he finishes by, by simply saying this in the cryptic, you cannot serve two masters. And I like the way our Lord places that in front of us. And notice what he says, whether you want to or not, whether you thought so or not, you are a slave. You are either a slave to the desires for wealth in this life, or you are a slave 
to the will of God and doing things that please God and setting your treasure in heaven. You cannot serve both of them. You cannot have your mind set on earth and your mind set on heaven. Notice for either Jesus says, notice the contrast of the two dual, two contrary dualistic system. You will either hate the one and love the other. You, whether it's God or the earth, you're going to hate one of them and love the other. He will be either devoted to one or be devoted. Devoted will show his actions. It shows what permeates from the heart. What comes out of your heart shows what you are doing. You're doing this. Jesus said it is for from the heart out of the abundance of the heart. The mouth speaks your actions come because it's found in your heart. So what you are doing comes from the heart, your devotion. You're going to be either devoted to one or you're going to be either devoted or the other. And Jesus lays down the mallet. Bam. You cannot serve both God and mammon. You have to make a choice. And all of this is still in the context of money. You cannot be, have your affections. You cannot have your mind set on worldly wealth and still be trying to serve God at the same time. You, we must choose and say it with me. I choose to serve God. Money, saints, money is only a utility. It is only something to be used. Pay your bills, pay your expenses, and after that, have no heart contents, have no heart attachments to money. Money should not have an emotional effect. It will. It will come to our flesh. But let us say, Liar, liar, pants on fire. Money is simply to be used for this world and for the kingdom. After that, I have no attachments to money at all. Money is not my treasure. Money is my tool. Okay. But anyway, even as he was talking, still in the instance of money. Okay. Notice it's a long talking about money here. Why? I told you earlier, because we struggle with stuff like this all the time. If not, it comes, it goes, it comes, it goes. So Jesus begins to deal with the reality concerning money. Why? We do need it. And that's why I was saying money is a tool. We do need it. And so he understands, even though he's saying, don't lay up treasure. Notice the whole point he just said, don't lay up the bunch of money on the earth and all this stuff. Notice. And people begin to say, well, if I don't do that, then what? So they become naturally what? Worried, naturally anxious. Why? You live in the world. You need food. You need clothing. You, you need to need house. So Jesus begins to di directly address this issue and simply says, don't worry about it. Don't worry about it. You just do. Now, here's what I'm saying. Let me say, tell you this. You just do the thing in life that you're supposed to do. Everybody's supposed to work, right? Why? For if a man does not work, neither shall anybody give him something to eat. So you do what God tells you to do. You work 
and don't worry about trying to get a whole bunch of money because as you do what I tell you to do, God will simply provide for your needs. So there is no need for anxiety. There is no need for worry. There's no need of trying to build up a whole lot of money. So even now we continue on with the context about money in verse number 25. For this reason, notice concerning money, for this reason, I say to you, what? Do not be worried about your life as to what you will eat or what you will drink, nor for the body as to what you will put on. Is not life more than food or the, and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air that they do not sow nor reap nor gather into barns. And yet your heavenly father feeds them. Are you not much more, much more worthy? I'm sorry. Are you not worth much more than they? And who of you by being worried can add a single hour to his life? And why are you worried about clothing? Observe how the lilies of the field grow. They do not toil, nor do they spin. Yet I say to you that not even Solomon in all his glory clothed himself like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which is alive today and tomorrow and thrown into the furnace, will he not much more clothe you? <laughs> oh, you of little faith. Do not worry then, saying what we will eat or what will we drink or what will we wear for clothing for the Gentiles eagerly seek all these things for your heavenly father knows that you need all these things, but seek first his kingdom and his righteousness and all these things will be added to you. So do not worry about tomorrow for tomorrow will care for itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. Isn't that beautiful? That is absolutely beautiful. How our Lord is teaching us to live daily by faith. Man in the wilderness, live daily by faith, knowing that God shall supply all our needs. You don't have to worry. But let's wrap it up. Final commentary on the text. He opens for this reason, lets us know he is still dealing with the issue of money. Now he changes it. Don't worry about laying it up. Why? Why? He says, do not be worried. And he says that three times in the text. Do not worry. Verse, chapter, verse 25. Do not worry. Verse number 31. Do not worry. Verse number 34. Notice what Jesus keeps saying to us. Do not worry. And I, I think somebody listening to this, I really do, needs to hear this. Do not worry. Your heavenly father already knows. But before I get there, no preaching. He says, don't worry about your life. Don't worry about what you're going to drink. Don't worry about your body. Don't worry about clothing. And so he gives examples concerning these things. And so what he says, he says, look at the birds. The first example, he, he makes us look at the birds. He say they do. And, and all of this is conjunctive. They neither sow, reap or 
bring into barns. All of that is one consent. Sowing, plant, plant, re-harvest, and then store it up. See it? All it to be seen in one thing. The birds don't do that. They just simply leave out for the day and nevertheless, what? After they leave out without doing any of this stuff, the idea is ultimately storing it up. They just go out, do their little work, find food, and God feeds them that day. Okay? Notice God provides them their daily bread. God provides for the bird. And then he said, now look at the birds. Compare yourself to the birds. God made the bird. The birds were even considered insignificant. Sold for, what, uh, one penny for two birds. He says, are you not, not worth much more than a bird? Man is made in the image of God. We have much greater value than a single bird. So if God would take care and provide for a bird, won't he provide for you too? Then he continues on and says, so fine. And if you worry yourself, you worry and worry. What can you do by worrying? You can't even add a single day unto your life. If you sit there worrying and worrying and worrying, what good does worrying do in the end? And I thought about that and I laughed at it because when you get through worrying, nothing changed. So since nothing is going to change simply by worrying, why worry? And so then again, <laughs> he continues on talk about clothing. He gives another example. He says, okay, if you're worried about clothing, don't do it. Observe. And that word that he used for observe is the only word that he used in the New Testament. This is called hypox legomena, but I'm not going to get into all of that. But it literally means when he says to observe, it means to look at, to think and draw conclusion from. Look at, think, and draw a conclusion from. To look at what? He says, look at the lilies of the field, how they grow. They don't toil and spin. They don't, that means they don't make clothing for themselves. But nevertheless, even though the lilies of the field, and guys, I, this is a personal statement from me. I love beautiful trees. I love beautiful plants. I, I just love to look at it. Sometimes I drive just to look at it. He says, look how beautiful they are. He says, not even Solomon in all of his glory, in all of his splendor, looked as beautiful as this lily, which is for today, and, and, and alive and beautiful today, tomorrow is dead and thrown into the furnace. It's no good. It's basically of insignificance. But even in their insignificance, yet God clothed them with beauty. If God clothed an insignificant plant, don't you think he will give you clothes too? He says, and even in comparison, Solomon did not dress according to their splendor. Now, let me take an, a little uh, a digression here. Notice he says Solomon was not dressed as splendor in greatest splendor as that. It tells us Jesus saw Solomon. He was there when Solomon was there. Over 700 years ago, Jesus was looking at Solomon. Again, he says, remember he says to the Pharisees, before Abraham was, I am. He is the God who existed even before he took flesh. But anyway, that's a little uh, uh, verse that speaks unto that. But nevertheless, let's go back to our context. So if God would dress 
insignificant plants. He'll also dress each one of us. And then Jesus dealt with the root of the problem concerning what? What you eat and drink and all of this and what you are aware. He dressed with the root of the problem. The root of our problem is, drum roll, we do not have faith in God. O oh, ye of little faith. When you, when you and I, when we don't believe that God will supply all of our needs through his abundance of riches and glory, it's simply because you don't have faith in God. And it kind of strikes me in a sense too, guys, because if it's one thing that God has shown and demonstrated through the ages of time, God is faithful. God, if one thing you can say about God, you can't say this about us, but you can say this in the definitive about God is, if one thing we know, he is, God is not a man that he should lie. Neither he son of man that he should repent. Has he not spoken and will he not perform it? Did he not say it? And will he not do it? If it's one thing God going to do, he's going to do what he says. And God says he will take care of his people. So when I say Jesus says, you of little faith, it comes to me. This is personal. It's almost like a slap in God's faith for his own children to say to him, imagine looking up to God after all God has promised to be with us, keep us, protect us, provide for our needs. For God's own children to look at him after he has said, I'll give you food, I'll give you clothes. And we say, I don't believe you. I don't believe you. And since I don't believe you, I'm gonna take things into my own hands. That's almost like a slap in God's faith from his own children when Jesus says it's because we have so little faith. Can I ask you guys a question? How many of you have kind of in this way slapped God in the faith? Being his own children had no faith in God providing for you. Let us repent of that. Let us repent of that mindset. Remember, money is just utility. We ain't gonna worry about it. God will provide, okay? But anyway, so he says, once again, 31, final commentary. Again, notice Jesus emphasizes, do not worry then. Again, what? Saying what you're going to eat, what you're going to drink, where, and all of these things. Why? For Gentiles, unbelievers, idolaters seek all these things. We are not unbelievers. We are not idolaters. We serve the true and living God, the true all-powerful God. We serve the God who can provide. We serve the God who will provide. Don't worry. Stop acting like he won't. Don't worry about that. And then he says this. I love this part. For your heavenly father already knows you have these needs. That is, and listen, listen. While you so busy worrying about these things, food, clothing, drink, don't you know God already knew you had these needs? And since he knows, I like, it's such a beautiful, let me talk. I know the video is long, let me talk anyhow. 
Since God knows you already has these needs, he has already made a way to provide for your needs. He saw it even before you said anything about it. And since he knew about it, he's already provided it. It takes our mind back unto Abraham, the time of Abraham. Okay, let's go back. Um, um, he called God Yahweh Yahweh. That is the God who sees. And actually it was not when I says Abraham's time, it was actually his handmaiden Hagar. Okay. His handmaiden Hagar when she ran away from Sarah and she referred to him as Yahweh Yari, the God who sees me. And because he is the God who sees, he is the God who will provide. All right. Because he is the God who sees. He already knew I knew what I, what, I, what I was going through. He knew the things that I needed and therefore he provided for my need. Yahweh Yari, the God who sees is the God who provides. But anyway, so instead of being concerned, finishing it all up, being concerned about money, being concerned about building up treasure on this earth. He's teaching about money that he's bringing to a close. Instead of worrying about all of this money stuff, this is what I tell you to make a priority in your life. Make this a priority. Seek first as priority the kingdom of heaven. Again, going to what he was saying, don't store up treasure on earth, store up treasure in heaven. Seek first primarily the kingdom of heaven, what? And all these things, what things? Food, clothing, shelter, all this stuff will be added unto you. And then he finishes up for the final time again. Do not so, do not worry. How many times can it be clear? Stop worrying. Speak to my heart. Maybe you can say, speak to my heart, Lord. Stop worrying. So I say to you, what? Do not worry about what? Tomorrow. Don't worry about it. Don't worry about it. Why? For the God who took care of you today, he will take care of you tomorrow. Give us today our daily bread. And when tomorrow come, give us this day too our daily bread. Stop worrying about the things of tomorrow. Why? Because the day's worry are sufficient within themselves. It's enough to worry about just for today. No need of piling on tomorrow's worry in, the, <laughs> in, in addition to all of these things. So Jesus concludes his teaching concerning money. He hadn't concluded his teaching concerning uh, the, the righteousness, the hypocritical righteousness of the Pharisees, but he now concludes his teaching concerning money. All right, guys, thanks for joining me in that lengthy discussion. I enjoyed that and I really hope you did too. And it moves our mind and I hope it does for you. It makes me consider and it makes me to remember, have faith in God, no matter what it is, no matter what I'm going through, God will supply all of my needs. What did Jesus say? So stop worrying. Do not worry. 
So I leave you with the same thing. Stop worrying, ye of little faith. Your father already knows all your needs and he has already made provisions for such needs. Contend with the worries of today. All right, guys, join me next time when we get into chapter seven and we start dealing with one of the first and primary issues that I love to deal with that people often throw into my face and probably threw into yours too. Do not judge. <laughs> anyway, see you then. Producing these videos take a lot of time and they take resources too, guys. All the, the computers, the cameras, the blah, 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 blah. They take resources. So if God touches your mind and your heart, bless this ministry. If it helps you, if these teachings help you, bless the ministry. Send a donation or even become a monthly partner with me so that I can continue to do these things. I don't do it. I don't do it to make money, God forbid, but I do it that the ministry may be supported and that I might continuously with joy, because it does give my heart joy, to continuously bring these lessons to you for your benefit, for your spiritual enrichment, okay? So help me out. 